Welcome to the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. In this season, we're going to explore how we can become better as a species at facing challenges and solving problems, especially during unpredictable situations. We're going to do that by exploring the machinery of our body and the biomechanics of resilience, adaptability, and social intelligence. We'll look at our power to control and modify how we use our hands, voices, bodies, breath, and the intelligent systems of our cells, bones, and muscles to unlock our potential as a cooperative and brilliant species. Thanks for joining. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 7. In this episode, I'm going to introduce you to Loretta Bruning of the Inner Mammal Institute in our interview. And to start, I'm going to do a little monologue on the concept of balance or bias. And I'm going to pull from a framework that was more or less proposed by a researcher who worked with Mary Ainsworth. Mary Ainsworth is one of the people who also worked with John Bowlby, who introduced the world, in a sense, to the idea of attachment theory. And I've talked about attachment theory on multiple episodes, but it's the idea that as mammals and as humans, we seek attachment to uh, an early caregiver in our earliest environments and later through other attachment figures in our adult years, but most importantly during our earliest years. And that the most important time to do that is during distress or danger. So the grad student who worked with Mary Ainsworth, who was someone who worked with John Bowlby, uh, her name is Patricia Crittenden. And what she did was she maintained a focus of John Bowlby, which was a focus on the idea of danger. Later attachment theories talked about the importance of play and safety, but John Bowlby really centered his concepts around how much we prioritize danger and fending off danger, protecting ourselves against danger. That is absolutely the most important criteria of all living organisms, really, and humans are part of that. And everything else comes next. And so within this framework of danger as being the central theme, we look at attachment as a protective strategy. It's not even really a bonus. (laughs) It's a protective strategy. And what shapes us the most, especially in our earliest years, is whether we were comforted and protected against danger. And danger can come in many forms. 
for us as humans. It can come in the form of rejection and abandonment and neglect and misattunement and all of those kinds of things. Those all represent different kinds of danger. And our what our experiences were during those times, during the distress, during the dysregulation, the disconnect and the danger. That That is really the central theme of Bowlby's work. And that's something that Patricia Crittenden continued with her work. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. First, uh, I want to just mention, so in that framework and in other models that I've been looking at as well for my book, there seems to be a theme of balance versus bias in a sense. Balance being that we figure out a way to integrate multiple strategies and multiple mechanisms and systems in each moment as best as we can and and throughout our day at varying intervals and varying dosages and things like that, but that there is some form of integrating multiple multiple kind of systems, I guess you could call it. And that could include things like our affective information, which is internal sensory information that has a flavor to it, whether we like something or dislike something, for example. Our arousal, whether we are feeling a a certain higher level of energy or a dampening of energy. That's another kind of system or varying sets of systems that we can play with, like turn up, turn down, adjust the volume of all of these different things. And not just that, but to recognize and assess and integrate the information coming from all of these different kinds of systems. And another is our cognitive, our logic kind of systems where we're we're thinking in a sense of cause effect of stuff that comes into our conscious awareness about reasons and foresight and planning, solving puzzles in a sense, looking for pieces of a puzzle and and putting them together. That's more of that cognitive logic stuff. All of these are often related to different networks of the brain. We you know, in modern neuroscience, we're not talking so much about parts of the brain doing stuff because it doesn't work like that. It's a giant interconnected web and different layers and all that. But there are different areas that activate differently based on different tasks. And the right brain is often known in attachment research to be very, very important for co-regulation, regulating with others and self-regulating. And then our the left side to be a little bit more activated in terms of words and symbolic kind of uh, realms. And so when we think about balance, we can think about how much we're integrating all of these different kinds of modalities and mechanisms. And I also like to think about this idea of balance, not being that everything has equal parts all the time, but that there's a constant dynamic dance of being very flexible in sense within our strategies, but also knowing when we have a bias towards one versus another, when we might be constantly using one kind of system a little bit more than the other. For example, constantly going into words and verbal type of logic 
and not going into our body as much and feeling things. These are all different ways that we can have more of what you would call regulatory flexibility, where we have a wide array of different choices, a a large repertoire of strategies. And another aspect of that is engagement or disengagement in stimuli. So when there is something going on, a challenge in life, whether we engage in it in order to come up with new insights, or we disengage and we distract ourselves, all of these can be turned up and turned down at different volumes. If we're always distracting and never thinking or never reflecting, then that there could be some avoidance involved in that and we may not get to new insights as to how we do things differently. But if we're constantly engaging in those thoughts and playing music to remind ourselves or, or talking to people about situations over and over again, There can be a constant engagement of that and activation of those networks, which also does not necessarily lead to new insights either. So we need time to engage and disengage, activate, deactivate, things like that. That to me is more the idea of balance rather than everything being equal all the time. It's just a a wide array of strategies that we can use to integrate as many different kinds of information and data and modalities and mechanisms into how we function. And that's something I have noticed in my own life. There's been a little bit less balance recently, just working remotely and having uprooted myself and just a very different lifestyle that I'm used to, where I've had much less balance in a sense and integration of sociality and doing more social things and a bit too much focus on words and verbal kind of stuff because of my book writing and being on computers where everything is graphical in that sense. So that those networks of my brain, it's I can actually almost feel like they're being hyper activated and it's it is leading to for me, a a much stronger desire to really figure out how to be outside a lot more and be with people a lot more (laughs) and in different ways. Um, And I imagine that if I'm going through something like this, there are a lot of people in the world who have been much more isolated and who are on computers a lot and maybe around the same kind of people over and over again and using the same kind of language over and over again. And I imagine that if I'm feeling this way, that there is not enough integration of multiple kinds of experiences that, and that's having a a negative effect, in my opinion, on my own nervous system, my own thought processes. And I have a lot of strategies and I'm doing a lot to not allow that to affect me negatively, but it's a lot of work. I imagine if that's the case for me, that it's just, it must affect a lot of people. And this sense of just being on uh, computers and the limitation of what that does to people's brains, I think is something important to think about.
So that's just one example of there would be a bias of a lot of graphical kind of usage of networks. Um, if, for example, we're on the computer a lot, because everything is represented in that sense. It's on a screen, it's two-dimensional. There's some kind of image or words that are representing an experience, but are not actually a multi-sensory kind of experience. Uh, that's one example of that. Another is, in terms of this balance or bias, would be whether we are biasing too much of our strategies during the day on stuff that doesn't involve things like our nutrition, what we eat, when we eat, how much we eat, sleep, how much we are outside, what kind of light we're exposed to, those kinds of things as well. So that's just something else. Um, I'll probably dive deeper into that in another episode, but something I don't talk about a lot, and I know that it's something that really, really affects me as well, is what I eat. I, I intermittent fast, and that's been a game changer for me. And what I eat throughout the day has dramatic effects on my mental and emotional functioning. So that's something else that I'll talk about in another episode, and I will likely bring someone on to interview about that. But, you know, just that's something else to think about that I think a lot of people, for example, I've noticed in the therapy world uh, and in the different clinics that I've worked at, they do a lot of stuff about talk therapy and this emotional kind of thinking and analysis, but they don't address nutrition and diet and what people are eating, how they're eating, when they're eating. And to me, there's there's just a night and day difference for me based on whether I fast and I, I generally have coffee and I fast for as many hours as I possibly can, actually. <laughs> um, I feel amazing when I do that. And I have to be very careful about what I eat because it it definitely affects my functioning in many ways. But there's also people who bias too much on that as well. And they think about the physicality of things. They think about what they're eating all the time. And all of, a lot of those kind of physiological different boosters and enhancements and optimizations. But they're not thinking about their, the different emotions that they may be avoiding or enhancing too much. Different knots that they might be able to untie. Uh, if there was a little bit more of that emotional kind of integration and reflection that goes into, in my opinion, really optimized brain functioning. And these are all things that I'm playing with myself. So trying to figure out how much I have bias in one versus the other. And so these are things that, especially in the new year as I transition, I'm going to be moving to Calgary just for a couple of months and being around different networks of people. I'm going to be playing with a lot of that stuff. But before we, I go into the interview with Loretta Burning, I thought I would introduce you to a very important framework, and that is the one that has been proposed by Patricia Crittenden. And it's called the Dynamic Maturational Model of Protective Strategies. And it's a play off of, or it's, a, it's based off of attachment theory, that's where she has a lot of her training, but it goes into a lot more depth and there's a lot more nuance to it. And one of the things that she talks about in this framework is the idea of something that is maladaptive or adaptive. And I think that's also a really important thing for us to think about. 
is not whether something is good or bad, and this can go for emotions, strategies, behaviors, but whether they're adaptive or maladaptive. And many of the behaviors that we may have were adaptive at some point. I think I've mentioned this many times, but there's certain things that when we were young and we had no choice as to whether we could be in that family or not, be in that environment, the strategies and the behaviors that we may have used to appease, for example, authority or be aggressive against it or ignore it or shut down and deactivate, whatever whatever those strategies were, they were adaptive for what we had, for the, the cards we were dealt. Now, because of the experience-dependent nature of our brain and the way our systems work and how they store memory and information and these implicit memories and how all of that works means that those can kind of, in a sense, get locked in. And because we are also predictive creatures and everything within our brain-body system is attempting to predict the world and, and keep things in that predictable way, we may continuously have these, in a sense, self-fulfilling prophecies throughout our lives. It's important for us to play with and explore all these different models that we see about different strategies that a lot of these theorists notice that children come up with when they're young as adaptive, in quotes, for their environment that tend to linger and continue on into adulthood. And the more we can see all these different kinds of things that these researchers and theorists notice, the more we might notice a little bit of that in ourselves. And we may have a large array of them. And again, none of these are are good or bad. They all play different roles. But the more we have this kind of awareness of different strategies and behaviors that might come up for us, the more we are actually putting that, what you would call into our conscious workspace. And that's a concept by Stanislas Dehen that when things go into our conscious workspace, into that place where we actually have awareness of it and what you'd call conscious access to it, that's where change can happen because we have a chance to notice, recognize a pattern, and then choose differently in some ways or create strategies to prevent or modify what we're doing. And until those come up into our awareness and we have conscious access to them, they tend to stay under that, under the surface in that sense. So I'm just going to list out uh, the many different types of strategies that come up that these theorists have, they have built, been building this model for a very, very long time. I think it's about 40 years now. 
and they've done a lot of different studies to validate it. There's still controversy. This is not like a a soundproof kind of model, but I do think there's a lot of really interesting things that come up from it and that correlate a lot with what I've seen over the years and many other kinds of theories. So the one central category in a sense is the B category, which is the balanced. And this is the idea that there's not necessarily a a biased strategy towards affective information or logic. So there's there's a, an integration of both logic and logic and cognitive, true, accurate cognitive information and affective information. And so what this results in is a fairly good ability to actually predict things because the person is using their abilities to pick up actual information that's occurring in live time and use their internal affective information and what you'd call that those interoceptive type of abilities. And they are the picture that's being portrayed for them and how they're processing that information is more accurate to what's actually happening. And that is in contrast to, for example, the A side of the strategies. The A side, the A category, has a bit more of distorted cognition. So meaning that information is being left out or distorted. So it's either being, in a sense, omitted or irrelevant information is being included. Relevant information is being excluded. And just cognition in general, like the logic and the amount of information the person is picking up that's being distorted somehow. And in this A category as well, there is a generally an omission of negative emotional stuff and negative affect or falsifying of some negative and positive stuff. Within this category, within the A side, the A category, there is a one to two levels are called inhibited or socially facile, meaning that the person is generally focusing on positive things in others and avoiding, and they're doing this in a sense to avoid disputes. So again, these are not good or bad strategies, but what can happen is they can become maladaptive if the person is actually leaving out information that would actually be important for them. And we'll see as we go that as the numbers get higher, so that was A1 to A2, as the numbers get higher in the A category, the more falsifying, in a sense, and distortion of information that happens. And this can get to a point where it becomes unhealthy and possibly even dangerous for a person. So that was A1 to 2, which is inhibited. A3 is compulsive caregiving. So that's where a person will actually bias how they express emotions and behavior in ways that they think others want. And they have a preference for caring for others as a way to meet their needs and denying their own. And this is a way of engaging other people and creating attachment is actually to overgive in a sense. So compulsive caregiving. A4 is compulsive performance. So this is can be more workaholic or perfectionist kind of tendencies and overachievement, very high standards for performance and a preference for challenging tasks. A4 as well is 
includes compulsive compliance. So this is obeying superiors and a lot of obedience to hierarchically generated commands. So a, a fawning and appeasing kind of thing. A5 is compulsive promiscuity. So this is about really biasing your appearance and a positive appearance to engage a wide number of people. So having a lot of social context, but not a lot of close involvement. A6 is compulsive self-reliance. So that's really trying to succeed without any kind of assistance and carrying out unpleasant or painful procedures by oneself. You know, I would say that I would fall under that one a lot in my life. And again, that has brought me a lot of really powerful and strong things that I think are very important. But it can be to this place where, as part of this model, if we're distorting cognition and we may even be missing out on other information, such as people that actually want to help us (laughs) and missing out on some of that information because we're distorting, we're distorting that in a sense in our information processing. A seven is compulsive idealizing where, um, and this is where it can get, it can get dangerous as well, where um, there's a creation of absolute positive information about dangerous people or conditions. So this is really seeing things in a positive light, even though they may actually be dangerous. And some of this, so this can have, there can be delusional positive affect in this. And this can also be happening when there is a reframing of distress in terms of religious or philosophical things. So this can be a very important protective strategy for people, especially if they are in childhood environments where certain things are happening. That is a a powerful way to survive very bad things. So again, these are protective and incredible things that our mind is able to do in order to help us get keep going, to keep somehow surviving whatever situations we're a part of. A8 is selfless. So this is readily accepting another person's negative perspective about ourselves. This can cause a lot of conflict between our own feelings and someone else's opinions of us or demands. I think that's something I'll admit as well as I think that's a flavor that has come up for me as well in my own life of accepting in childhood, accepting the negative opinions of me and possibly in contradiction to what what I was truly feeling inside. And I think that happens to a lot of kids growing up, uh, sadly. The C categories are slightly different. This is where there is a distortion of negative feelings, sometimes a overbias of that, and a leaving out of information, like an actual omission of different kinds of cognition. So like a leaving out of logic in some sense. So C1 to 2 is threatening disarming. 
Um, And this is where someone might highlight their own feelings and needs and warn somebody of future problems, like if if those needs are not met. C3 is aggressive. So this is, this can be a lot of protective action during crises and an almost aggressive invulnerability to protect others, which again, these are all can be very important, powerful. They can be adaptive things. It's when, when they are happening in situations that are not, where the context is not demanding that where this is where they can cause challenges if someone is being overly protective of somebody and that's not needed. C4 is fiend helplessness. So that is when we accentuate and highlight our vulnerability and we hide our comp- our competence in order to engage assistance from others. C5 is punitive. And that's where a person is using a lot of plans and projects to enlist support. Again, this can be an extremely positive, adaptive thing. Where they see challenges in this is if there's actual false information that's occurring that is have, getting a person to create these kinds of plans and projects and enlist support when there is not, for example, a danger that's happening. C6 is seductive. So there is an alternation between enticing or even sexualizing oneself and then bitter resentment when the reaction is not met. And that's a way to enlist appeasing behavior from others. C7 is menacing. So the the higher the number, the more the distortions are occurring. None of these behaviors in and of themselves are ever adaptive or maladaptive. It's within this particular framework that if they are combined with a certain kind of information processing where there is a distortion of information, that's where these can become maladaptive. So menacing is where there is a a distortion in a sense of how they're perceiving the facial expressions, for example, of family members or how they're speaking. If there's a lot of distortion of what's happening and delusional kind of thinking, then that person may start to become very menacing towards, for example, the people in their family. C8 is paranoid, so um, suspecting everyone and seeking to control these inexplicit dangers. And then AC is a combination of all these strategies. I just bring these up because this model is also used when uh, in the criminal justice system as well to attempt to bring other kinds of insights and perspectives into people's behaviors and to help have some understanding that some of what we see as these distortions and these kinds of information processing errors where there's erroneous information or omitted information or distorted, that information processing aspect often has roots in childhood. And when we can see what the behavior was in childhood that might have been adaptive, we can watch how that can play out into adulthood. And that can give us some better ideas of what we can do, especially when it comes to different kinds of therapies, where we understand that each person has different ways that they distort information.
I think that it's just useful for us to think about how we all have different behaviors that come up where we don't realize that we're potentially, for example, seeing over positivity and we're over appeasing, we're over complying, we're trying to be a caregiver, or we are being too suspicious and we're suspecting uh, negative things when they're not there. So there's all these different little distortions and strategies that are, are occurring with, within all of us. Where I tend to not agree as much with a lot of different models that I see is that I think so many of us are a blend of all of these different things and they all get activated in different ways depending on the context and the unconscious, the often unconscious triggers that are happening from the different hierarchies and social relational dynamics that are happening in each moment. So we may use certain kinds of strategies when we're with friends and there's a certain hierarchy that is in a a sense established within that friendship versus we go into a workplace or a community where there's more unknown variables or the the dominance and the hierarchy is less known, etc. So I think that we play with all of these kinds of strategies. And I just wanted to bring up that model for just thinking about how there are a lot of different theories out there that bring up different nuances of how we may have had a lot of behaviors when we were young that works. All of the stuff that I listed had some roots in being something that protected the person somehow when they were little. And it the issue is that as the person gets older, it's not useful, for example, to always suspect that something bad is going to happen, but that might have actually been a very useful strategy when they were little to suspect that that person was going to do harm because then that person would be able to do whatever they could to remove themselves or prevent whatever that was going to be. So that kind of suspicious type of behavior, for example, can be very adaptive. And the appeasing, the avoiding conflict at all times, the idealizing of somebody else, that might have been very adaptive for someone also in an environment where that was the strategy that kept them from being, you know, hit or having cruel behavior against them, whatever that was. So that is my little spiel on (laughs) balanced and biased type of information processing and how many different systems and mechanisms we're using. And in the next section, we will go into my interview with Loretta Burning. So thank you for joining me. Welcome to the show. It's so great to have you on. I think your work is fascinating and very relevant to what a lot of us are going through. So I'm very happy to have you here. Nice to be here. Thanks. So I think how I'd love to start is just with your journey, how you got to the place where you're now the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute and how that how that all unfolded for you. Sure. Well, when I was a kid, there was a lot of unhappiness going on around me all the time. And I think I always had the attitude of like, 
what is everybody so upset about? So when I look for the, you know, the core patterns, I couldn't figure out. And I wanted to because otherwise things would get blamed on me. So when I discovered such a thing as academic psychology, I was very interested. But as the years went by, um, it it didn't really explain reality for me mm. because it wasn't my primary profession. I was free to sample many different subdisciplines within psychology. And when I was a professor and a mother, uh, the accepted paradigm did not explain the motivation or lack of motivation of my students my own kids, mm. and the children of the professors who were teaching this stuff. Right. So that's why I was so motivated to keep researching. I took early retirement, and first I stumbled on evolutionary psychology, which did not exist when I was in college. Mm. And one little fact led to another, and I understood the power of the animal brain and the chemicals that we've inherited. Would you be able to describe a little bit what what you mean by that? What do you mean by inner mammal? So the brain chemicals that make us feel good are inherited from earlier mammals. So dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin. I was amazed when I read like monkeys have the same chemicals, like rats have the same chemicals. Mm -hmm. And in the animal world, it's very easy to see the job of each chemical because they don't have a higher brain to suppress the response. Mm. In addition, what amazed me was that these chemicals are controlled by the limbic system, which is the brain core that we all have, we have in common with all mammals. And your human cortex can't control the chemicals and your human cortex can't control your body. Your, your mammalian limbic brain is the connection between your cortex and your body. So this is like basic biology, but to me, it was very meaningful and I think people should know it. Mm -hmm. But the way I say it is, if you want to feel good, you have to get it from your inner mammal. And it also, um, something that you, an article you wrote and part of some of your books too is that I think is really powerful is this idea that we have this expectation that we should be happy all the time and feel good all the time. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. We could call it the medical model or, you know, people can blame whatever we, they want as the source of this. But the current perception is that your happy chemicals should flow all the time for no reason. And if they don't, it's a disorder and you should get it fixed. But um, the chemicals are not designed to flow all the time. And in fact, it would not benefit you if they did. They have a very specific job is to motivate forward action in appropriate circumstances. So if you took those forward actions in the wrong circumstances, it wouldn't benefit you. Right. Yeah. And I feel like there's just a lot of relevance for how even social media affects many people and just this idea that we should be feeling good all the time, that there's not going to be fluctuations. And I, so I feel like that's something important too. I think you talked about this, um, that 
having more realistic expectations about what our inner state is going to be. That really excites me to talk about. (laughs) Sure. Well, first, it seems very confusing because the mammal brain evolved to promote survival, and yet we often associate happiness with behaviors that are bad for survival. So that's why this doesn't immediately click. So Mm -hmm. the missing piece here is that we're wired by past experience. We're born unwired. And each time my dopamine surges when I'm young, it builds a pathway that tells me, so if like, if I have a pizza and it feels great, if I eat the whole pizza in a moment when I was feeling bad, mm-hmm. it build, it's a big surge of dopamine that wires me to say, whoa, eating a whole pizza, that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. So each brain is wired by its own experience. And it's not just about looking for, you know, criticizing yourself, criticizing the world and what are we doing wrong, but to really accept that these pathways are real physical things, that they evolve to motivate survival behavior, but you're defining survival with your past experience and you just need to update that. Mm-hmm. That relates a lot to, uh, I've been in a lot of psychoanalytic kind of Freudian circles as well. And just even in terms of attachment theory, things like that. Uh, what I wonder here is even something like when you're young and you need to get attention, for example, in a dysregulated household or whatever that is, there may be mechanisms you're using to get that that are not necessarily functional for healthy adult really or any kind of functional relationship later. Is, does that tie into this? Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned dopamine, but then we have two social chemicals. So in my work, I talk about four quote unquote happy chemicals. And each one is a very different good feeling. We want all of them and they all promote a different survival behavior. So the two different survival behaviors, you mentioned attachment, um, but there's a a spin on this. So in the animal world, when you're with a herd, you can let down your guard and then it's easier to eat because you're not so focused on finding predators. So that's the good feeling of social support we all understand. And that's Mm -hmm. oxytocin. Mm -hmm. But then there's a different uh, social feeling, which Mm -hmm. is the urge for social dominance or social importance or social power. Mm. And it's so clear to see that we all have it. And in my toddler grandchildren, it's like so clear, you know, and in your, your pets, it's so clear. And yet it's like taboo to acknowledge, but Freud was great. Freud really (laughs) saw it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. It's a real thing. So, and what it is, is serotonin. And that's not the way people usually think about serotonin. But in the 80s, there was research on it. So first, there was a whole century of research on social hierarchy in mammal groups. From There was a 1911 dissertation on a, quote, pecking order in birds. And then it was found in every mammal, almost every, um, I can explain the exceptions, but they have social hierarchies and you have to find a one-up position in order to get the resources you need to keep your genes alive, which Mm. is explained in any introductory course in evolutionary biology. And the brain motivates you with a good feeling. So you go for it. 
And a nice way to say it is that you look for a safe way to assert where you can win. And you could call it the natural urge to be special, which is natural and normal. And yet in a world of nine of 8 billion people, like everybody wants to be special. So that's why we don't have the good feeling all the time. Two dynamics that come to mind for this is one, the family dynamic of like siblings and even the Freudian complexes of trying to one up, which may even result in trying to one up if, you know, you're the the mother or the father, you know, in terms of all these hierarchies. And even some of the major conflicts that start to happen as each member of the family starts to have a little more power and a little more ability to do things. All these power battles that happen in a sense, right? And the sibling rivalry that I also would see that comes up from that. Yeah, yeah. So here's here's the thing. It's like so much of this is natural and inevitable. So we don't necessarily need to pathologize it or see it as a trauma. Right. And yet it's almost inevitable that we do because we have this pain system, let's call it, or threat detection system that we've inherited from our ancestors. And the safer the world we live in, the more this threat system gets triggered by minutiae. And Mm. so because my brain is wired by experience, so the, the, the cortisol pathways triggered by my brother stealing my cookie is a significant pathway if I have no bigger problems. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. um, which is not to uh, downgrade the fact that sometimes there are much bigger problems that are caused by uh, this very urge for power. Um, But it's, it's very individual and it's not really helpful to give everyone the idea that everyone is traumatized. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because I think there, there's a positive drive to much of this too, right? To figure out how we are special. Mm-hmm. How do we, you know, get that status is part of what drives us to figure out what our talents are, what our contributions are. And then that makes me think about um, what you were saying before too with like Instagram or social media where the number of followers, the number of likes, I would think would have some association with, oh, I'm now a little bit higher up in status. And so I feel like there's a lot of where this can go really, really wrong because people are trying to evaluate their specialness based on, and right now it's going to be just this appearance which I almost think could predict why the filters and the even exposing more body parts or more scandalous, whatever it is, anything that will get you the more likes, will get you the more followers, there's going to be this hunger to keep trying to have more status. And it will come in a place where we may not be thinking about what really sets us apart and makes us individuals because mm. we're trying to compete on these same like metrics. On the one hand, yes, it's maddening. On the other hand, so let's put it in context. So 
One thing is that dopamine is uh, doesn't last for a long time, and its job is to get our attention to something new. So if I get more likes than I did before, then I get a nice dopamine spurt. But that wires me then to want to check my numbers again. And inevitably, there are going to be times that the number is going to be down. And right. that's going to be a little cortisol spurt. So right. that's the, the reason of the ups and downs. You know, we're creating it ourselves. Yeah. Now, the other thing is social comparison. So in the animal world, social comparison is constant because if I grab for food near a stronger ape, they're going to bite me. And that can be very life-threatening. So that triggers cortisol when I see that you're stronger than me. And I pull back and I look for an, another opportunity where I could be in the one-up position. And then excuse me, we have these mirror neurons where we see when other people are getting rewards. So every teenager looks at the world and, and even like little kids is like, what is getting rewarded? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, I want right. to do that. So right. mirror neurons are telling you to do it. And then other people are doing it. And you want to get that one-up position like them. And so all of this is things people have always done. And we're right. just using a new medium for it. But I always use the example that when the status hierarchy was based on how small your waist was, people wore corsets that practically killed them, including men. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's a great point to make. Yeah. That, I mean, this has existed for a very long time. It's just happening in different ways now. Yes. Uh, and we, and I would say too, that we have way more access to more of who we could compare ourselves with than we did a long time ago. Yes. But we have ups and downs with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, when you lived in a small town, it was very frustrating because like if you were had those people above you and right. you saw them on the street every day and you didn't have the chance to just get on a bus and say, oh, I'm going to start over in the big city. And the other yeah. thing is like in the 50s, if you remember like some 1950s movies, the new technology that people suddenly had access to young people was cars. And so it was like how who could drive faster. And when people were in a bad mood, they just went around and drove aimlessly and drove faster and faster. So people have always put all these frustrations onto whatever is the latest technology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That actually, you know, I think points to a positive side of where we're at in society as well, in the sense that when you could only compare yourself to a tiny little community, that's going to lower the standard in a sense too of what you could even experiment with. But now you can really start to see like, oh, this kind of niche, I could, I could be here in this niche or this niche. Yeah. So I feel like it really expands in a way our potential of how we explore like our interests, our talents. Yeah. 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 But the bottom line is as we're exploring and niche shopping, we're doing it with a view to where can I raise my status? But because we can't admit to ourselves that that's the core motivator, mm. then we have to find other explanations. Like I want to save the world and, you know, or, you know, or I have a dream or my true talent or whatever. And so I'm trying to say that, um, although it sounds bad to say uh, I want to be in a one-up position, if you don't see that it's coming from yourself, 
then you blame other people for it and you think they're all trying to put you down Mm. and take the position away from you. And so it helps to know that every monkey does this. And when the good feeling turns on, it only lasts for a few minutes. So we got to do it again and again. So even if you were on the top 10 billionaires list, you would spend your whole life worrying about getting kicked off it. That to me would point to the importance of what I call like diversifying your portfolio, right? Of how you regulate, how do you find peace and comfort? Just diversify it, have many, many, many different options for how you do that. 100%. And and to me, that's, that's been a really important part of my life. And talking about, I think in one of my previous podcasts, about regulatory flexibility, which is our ability to use almost like just different systems in different ways um, that that we have access to in so many different situations so that we're not constantly relying on the same sources for our good feelings or our comfort. Yes. Yeah, I think that's really, really important. Yeah, yeah, for so many reasons. So one reason is because there's four different happy chemicals and we want all of them. So if your usual pattern is only triggering one of them, then you're missing out on the others. And the other reason is that the brain habituates to any reward you have. Mm -hmm. So a century ago, if you had hot running water, you would be ecstatic because (laughs) it would save you all that effort of carrying the water and building the fire to heat it up. But now hot running water doesn't make you a bit happy. So whatever reward you have, you habituate to it and then you look for more and you might just ramp up something that's not good for you. So the more tools you have, the, the more treats in your pantry that are healthy treats. Yeah. I think that that's an important message for a lot of young people that right now, many of them are very dependent on the phone for those, you know, those chemicals, really the feel good chemicals. So the more that, you know, I have somebody that I work with who through our kind of joint exploration, he decided to not be on social media at all, which is really impressive. He's like 17 um, but he, so he actually will go around his dorm and just try to talk to different people and then go outside. And so he has so many different ways to do this, which I just think is mm. a model for other people. So that's so good. And frankly, you know, I, I totally could not do that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, the reason people don't do it that, um, I learned so much from nature videos. So when a monkey is in the adolescent phase, you know, equivalent to our adolescence, they typically leave their group and I'm oversimplifying, but they leave their group and they have to find a new group. And they have life and death feelings about this because they could easily be killed by a predator before they find the protection of a new group. Mm. And this is why teenagers have a life and death feeling about finding a new group. Mm. And then if you get a rejection, like Mm -hmm. social, um, the survival of your genes depends on social acceptance. Not consciously, you're not thinking about keeping your genes alive, but 
that's why your mammal brain creates life and death feelings about these things. So every rejection, you know, when you go out and try to connect with people, you get rejection. You don't always get immediate right. reciprocation. Right. And that really scared me to death when I was young. So it's a real valuable skill. And yeah, young people- right. So lucky to know that rather than waiting as many decades as I waited. Yeah. And to um, practice surviving rejection. Yes. To keep building that track record that you do actually survive it. Um, Something else you said that I found intriguing um, is you talked about getting caught up in minutia. Like when we have less of the, the bigger survival things to think about, that makes me think of um, even you know, I don't know if this would be related, but even veterans coming back from from war where they are in literal life-death danger and those massive circuits are firing and then they come home and, you know, I would think that there'd be some sort of frustration that might even happen with seeing people get very dysregulated over what they would consider minutiae. I don't know if that's how it would translate, but yeah, but they may all also get dysregulated themselves. So are you saying that? Oh, yeah, it could be that, right. Oh, so, but I see. So you're talking about, yeah, like watching other people obsessing over, would you like chicken or beef? And it's like, <laughs> yeah. hey, people are dying out there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or it could, I guess, happen within them because I think our system would eventually start to, if there is less of these real survival scenarios, it would start to, um, Habituate. Well, yeah, you would project your survival mode onto small things things, because you have such a highly developed. So once again, um, so we're all born with billions of neurons, but very few connections between them. And the connections build from experience. And you could think of the chemicals as like paving on the pathways. Mm -hmm. And that applies to happy chemicals and threat chemicals. So whatever triggered your threat chemicals in your past built pathways for you to look for that. And when now you're in a safer situation, but you still have these huge threat pathways that turn on a huge response to, Mm -hmm. excuse me, to something very small. Mm -hmm. Um, so that right. was one example, but um, often a person who can't readjust to civilian life often had huge threat pathways from their childhood. Right. I was just going to say, right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. However, then you can have another child who had quite a safe life, but they didn't get invited to a party and somehow they had a parent who created the perception that this was a survival threat because the parent is bringing their own emotion to it, which is too much for the child to carry because of that parent's past and can still build a very big circuit that fears rejection even without any Mm -hmm. survival threat. Yeah. And that makes me think also of perceiving neutral faces as threatening like I, I think there can be a, a strong negativity bias yes. for a yes. lot of people. Yeah. Absolutely. So do you, do you have more to say on that? Oh, well, uh, I had this very much myself. So um, I don't know if you heard me talk about it in something else. So I had trouble making eye contact with people mm-hmm. and I 
realized that it was a problem and I decided that I would practice. So I started practicing um, when I would uh, check out at a store and I would give money to the cashier in the olden days when you gave money to people (laughs) and that I would look them in the eye Mm. and smile at them. And I realized that if they didn't smile back at me or, and they didn't even look back at me, that I would be very triggered. But I realized that they had no reason to look back at me because most people don't look at them and they have a job to do so that it was in me. And I was like, well, where did I get that in my past? And Mm -hmm. and needless to say that I was a a child with a depressed mother and I had nobody smiling back at me. And, And it was so helpful for me to know that rather than to think that all these cashiers were were intentionally, you know, doing bad. I think that's very helpful for people to hear just that we may have experiences from a long time ago where the the look on someone's face or the shutting of a door or the walking away or some sort of social cue was so relevant to our own safety, to our literal safety at that point, because we don't have the ability to get our own resources and all that stuff. So those social cues may be so linked to something very, very threatening within us. Yeah, right. Mm, so she's a great example of it, that the shutting the door and that's a great example or some kind of music. So it's not necessarily a logical link, but the right. brain links all the neurons active at that moment. Mm-hmm. And there's a good reason for that because again, going back to animal examples, if a predator is about to get you and they swoop down overhead and then you survive, all the neurons active at that moment connect to help you anticipate mm-hmm. an attack before it happens the next time. So yeah. when this predator swooped down, it blocked out the sun and there was a sudden darkness. So the next time you see a sudden darkness, you think, oh, that's the predator. So that it, in the human world, it could be a shutting of a door or any word, sound, smell, anything. Right. Wow. That's a great analogy. Um, that there's there's these things that are going to happen outside of our awareness also, which is also why it's so important for us to become more aware of our internal state, to have some of that interoceptive awareness so that we recognize that, oh, my heart's fluttering right now. But as soon as we bring a little bit of awareness to that, that there could be a pattern and the pattern may not be logical either. Yes. I think that's a very important connection for people to make. Absolutely. And I I could tell you the story about the first time I made this connection, which was only like 10 years, 10 years, 15 years ago, but I was already (laughs) Old, old. (laughs) I was already retired. I I took early retirement. So I was on this, I was in a very, very good situation. And I suddenly felt bad, Mm. like, like a sense of doom, like everybody knows, like when you suddenly, and it's like, 
what is that? What am I so upset about? So the sudden feeling of upset was cortisol. So that is triggered, like it tells you something bad's going on. And I was like, what's bad's going on? I'm, I'm having a great time. And I had to consciously say, okay, what happened a minute ago? What happened two minutes ago? And five minutes before that, there was this teeny weeny misunderstanding, let's say, between me and my husband and a waiter. And in this case, Frank, to, to make a long story short, I wanted to support my husband. And so I feared conflict with the waiter. Oh. And my fear of conflict was fit the pattern of my early experience. And oh. it turned on the gates, even though yep. the situation was over and I was out of the restaurant and it was all over. But yeah. the cortisol lasts in your body for about an hour. Wow. That resonates so much, uh, even for me and experience. I think it was like last year. I mean, I've had mo aha moments like that consistently, but I remember a really big turning point last year was very much the same thing. I was at home. I was just, you know, making dinner and all of a sudden it was just very sudden feeling of, yeah, you'd even, I could even say maybe doom like that. Oh, the sinking feeling. And I did the exact same thing. I stopped what I was doing. I sat down on the couch so that I could just feel the feeling and then figure out, you know, this came from somewhere, some thought or something popped into my head or some cue came into my, my being some, in some way. And what I'd realized was not too long before that there, I was trying to help somebody like via text with a situation they were dealing with. And it, it, what the the answer I gave, they said didn't wasn't helpful for whatever it was. It was just some I can't remember what it was. Minutia. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was something silly. But that affected me, I, and it made me realize too how how afraid I was. And I and then I was able to connect the dots to childhood of when I felt like I couldn't help. It, it was very serious, you know. It, it was a very serious feeling. Yes. So. But just having that awareness lifted, lifted the feeling. Yes. yes. It, you, because you realize it. I, I don't know. I'm not even sure why it lifts the feeling, but it does. So because it's the brain signal that there's a predator and you have to escape a threat. And then you suddenly know that you don't have to escape right. a threat. There right. is no predator. Right. But in between that, the other thing is when an animal smells a predator, they don't run instantly because then they might run in the wrong direction. So first they have to gather information. Mm. So when we have that survival threat feeling, we look for information, but we only look for negative information. And that triggers a spiral where you look for something bad and then you say, I knew it. There's something really bad going on. And then you have more cortisol. So what you just said, it stops the spiral, right. even though the bad feeling may last a few minutes, but in your conscious brain, you can just accept it because you know, it's not a real threat. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that you're doing that you're, you're, you're pointing to that's very important is I think Sometimes when we have a negative feeling, and this could happen in relationship, any kind of social dynamic, if we all of a sudden have a bad feeling that actually has deeper roots to stuff that happened in childhood that was threatening, then our brain is going to seek, it's saying threat is happening now, where is it? If the person in front of us is right there, we say, you're the problem, yes. you're the threat. Exactly. When, when actually 
whatever they were doing might just be, you know, a subdued response or somewhat neutral. There is no actual threat, but to us, it's hitting us like that. Exactly. So that's, that's really important. I think, uh, you know, I want to highlight that for my audience right now too, of just how important it can be to pause when we're in, because if we're not in an actual physically threatening situation, I think it can be worth the effort to, to do as as much as we can, you know, without like when we're on our own to regulate ourselves, but in a moment to have a bit of a pause as well, to just feel the feeling even to just come back into our body, just to get it so that we we're, we're just making a little bit of a pause before we think that that person in front of us is definitely the cause of all (laughs) of the problems that we're feeling bubbling up inside. Yeah. And needless to say, if you blame them for all of this, then they're just another mammal with their own history and it's not going to go well. (laughs) Right. Right. And so, I mean, you can just see how difficult human dynamics are, right? Absolutely. We're talking about in person or even online, right? Just like, and all of these people getting triggered. And if they don't have that consciousness, if they don't take the time to understand that there's patterns behind our feelings. Mm. And that the patterns are generally when we feel really, really in upheaval about something and we're not in a life-threatening situation, it likely, to me, I think would have deeper roots where stuff, social cues were much more threatening. Yeah. So this is the thing. The deeper roots don't get enough attention because people are almost offended when you say, well, what do you think? I'm not, you know, and even like my yoga teacher would always say, you know, be in the present, don't be in the past, but it's just not realistic. Our brain is designed to run on old neural pathways. And if I once again can go into the animal explanation, Mm -hmm. so the bigger an animal's brain, the more it's wired from experience. The smaller an animal's brain, the more it's born hardwired and has a very short childhood and just is born with survival skills and just leaves home and just repeats the behaviors of its ancestors. Mm -hmm. So the only reason you have a cortex is to wire it from experience rather than being born pre-programmed with your grandparents' skills. But what experience does it wire it with is early experience because in the state of nature, parents died young. So to be like seven years, 12 years where you can't do anything for yourself, that was a huge survival risk. Mm. So once your brain has put all this energy into building that neural network, you're not going to just throw it out. But most people think that they, oh, I learned everything myself after I left home and my parents were wrong about everything. Yeah, that's so powerful because I think too, I've heard people say that, yeah, sure, I had a Trump, you know, I had abusive parents and this, 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 and we went through all that. But but I'm not going to blame them for anything because I want to, I want to be accountable for who I am now. And I totally agree with that to a certain degree. We absolutely must be. But I think what I've seen in some of the people that are saying that is they discount completely that their past plays a role. And then it's very hard for them to make sense of why they are so angry at this person now. 
And that's the part that to me is the missing link. It's not about not taking accountability. It's not about blaming the past and staying stuck in the past. It's about saying, oh, actually my present reaction has roots. And so let me just join that in my, in my awareness so that I don't take it all out on you in this moment. And there's nothing shameful about that because it's universal. Everyone is wired by their early experience. You quoted Steve Steven Pinker in one of your articles, and you said the verbal brain lacks insider information about the emotional brain. So I wouldn't mind talking a little bit more about that too, just in in the sense of well, humans we do have language and we do have this verbal brain. So what is it that sets us apart from mammals in that sense? Like how is that a gift and a curse to have have that? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I always say. We have two brains and we need both. We have two brains because we need both. And, you know, there is one point of view of like the animal brain is bad and you shouldn't be in that brain. And then there's another view that the human cortex is bad and you shouldn't be in that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The real skill is for them to work together. And Mm. I talk about working together like a horse and rider. And how does a horse and rider work together? The horse uh, the the writer has to understand the horse mm-hmm. and understanding means understanding what stimulates the happy chemicals in animals. And if you say, oh, that's not me, I don't care about those things. Maybe you don't admit it in your verbal brain, but your animal brain, that's what makes it happy. And then your, your, um, your animal brain, you need to sort of trust in your human cortex and it's hard to do that when people are saying to kill your ego. You know, it's like, oh, I don't have any ego. I only care about other people. Your inner mammal hears that as it's never your turn. I'm never going to give you what you want. You always come last, which mm. is, makes it not release happy chemicals. Mm-hmm. Would you say that when we do find words, even in the sense of how we're doing it right now, where we find some of the explanations and maybe, maybe it's not completely verbal, not sure, but that we do in a sense, get a little bit more, not control, but maybe a little more mastery over, over those, those animal instincts, which may still always have their initial burst in a sense too, but that we can ride that (laughs) a little bit better. Uh, Yeah. And putting words to them is also the way we can access what I call, you know, the old pathways. So we have these repetitive thoughts from our early pathways Mm -hmm. and they happen so quickly and efficiently because those big pathways are so efficient that we never get to the point of putting that thought into words. So you could say, oh, I wasn't thinking that. And so putting it into words is just the way we can access awareness of the pathway because we have no other way to access it, but we still need to access it because like I said, that that limbic system is the connection that controls your body. So you can't control your body with just words. And the the study with this that people probably heard about is when um, 
They studied, you know, if you're playing a poker game and you're making a decision about what should I do, that they're talking about the body's response versus the, the conscious brain's response that the bodily response came first. Right. Yes, yes, I, I do know that study. So I'm thinking in terms of like putting putting words to it, there's a lot of research on the promising effects of narrative of how, especially people with past trauma, making a narrative about it, I think is really powerful. So positive expectations versus negative expectations. So expectations are real physical pathways in your brain. And dopamine is triggered by a positive expectation. That's all it is. And cortisol is triggered by a negative expectation. So if you have already created a story in your head that has a bad ending, (laughs) then, you know, this always happens to me, that always happens to me, then you keep triggering your cortisol and you miss out on your own dopamine. So the narrative is a way to consciously realize that you're doing that and then give the story a different ending. Mm, And before you get to the point where you're able to do that, that's why people like to watch happy movies or novels with happy endings, or even I say sports is a way where you see somebody fail and fail, and then they finally succeed. And that wires you to do that. Mm -hmm. And, And I would think too, with the narrative that there, there's so much that goes on that's, you know, nonverbal and pre-verbal that doesn't make sense to us. But when we find a way to actually put words to that, Mm-mm-mm. to me, I think there's also almost a visual pattern that could maybe even emerge of how many times you see that word, you know, at this moment and then at that moment and then at that moment. So almost a a pattern recognition that could start to happen when we put words to it. Yeah, absolutely. And that is actually what differentiates humans from animals is pattern recognition. So Mm. you've probably heard this and um, animals can recognize patterns, but it's just from sensory input. They learn to recognize the patterns they've actually experienced repeatedly in youth, but humans can abstract from that and vary the pattern For example, learning a foreign language is like an abstraction pattern that you're layering onto the pattern you learned from sensory Mm. inputs when you were Mm. young. I'm working a lot with youth right now and young people and this whole idea, just to come back full circle to what we were talking about in the beginning of having more realistic expectations of the fluctuations of life and mood and internal state that one thing I think I see missing in the world. And I don't know if this is a generational thing, but it's this, we are lacking some of this, pattern like you know these abstract representations through words or whatever about the down the the downs so we have a lot of the uh fear inducing kind of stimulus that's happening but we also have a lot of the the narrative kind of flavor 
is very, very positive, especially with young people. Because it's only about when they look good. It takes them five hours to get one shot. Then that's the shot that they take. <laughs> you know, it's about how great their life is, uh, that kind of thing. Um, so what I wonder there too, is that we're missing some of those abs- those layers of the ups and downs part that would actually really help young people to see exist so that when they're feeling that way, they don't think they're defective in some way. They don't think something's wrong with them. And I think that I just see that happen over and over again. Yeah. So they've gotten so many unhelpful messages that were with good intentions. So yeah. So the first one, like you said, is if you're not happy all the time, then, oh, maybe you have a disorder. Let's get that fixed. Um, but the, the reality is that we're born unhappy, really. <laughs> and we were born crying. And then it's the skill of feeling safe is has is has to be learned and then we go back to feeling unsafe and then we have to go learn to reactivate the feeling of being safe this is the most important skill that anyone has and we have to keep building it throughout life and to expect that it should just come effortless all the time that's not great but right. then the other thing is that the educational system has this idea that schools should always be fun and it should be work And if it's not fun, then it's the teacher's fault for not having made it fun. So then how do teachers try to motivate you is by telling you to dream big and then you'll find your passion and then it will always be fun. So then as everyone has these grandiose delusions, like so no tolerance, like you said, for the downs and unrealistic expectations about the ups. Yeah, huge, huge. Um, And then finally, just to kind of wrap up, actually, that makes me think of um, an attachment researcher, Gordon Neufeld, who talks about, especially in childhood, but throughout throughout our life, that there are some parents that always want their child to be happy and that they think something is wrong when their child is not happy. And they may even take it personally because of their own stuff uh, or just there's just a lot of confusion about a child being unhappy and dysregulated, that they want to avoid it at all costs. And I love, he has this this term called the agent of futility and the angel of comfort. Um, And what he says there is that children do need to have to be said no sometimes because they can't decide everything for their life. Otherwise they would eat cookies at all times of the day. Um, And that it's okay for them to tolerate distress and that relationships need to tolerate distress and rupture. Children need to be able to tolerate that because if it's not life-threatening, they're going to be okay. That we all need to have a little bit more tolerance for that and show that we survive these ups and downs. I feel like that's a really important thing for us to bring back a bit more into many of our communities and circles is this tolerance of the distress. Yeah. Absolutely. That's such a great point. And I have to say, though, you know, in in, uh, comfort to parents. So first, I didn't know any of this when my kids were young. And now that I'm around toddler grandchildren, I see how really hard it is. To, and like how you jump to the conclusion that there's got to be something wrong that I could yeah. fix yeah. and I'm going to keep trying until I fix it. Yeah. And it's really hard to accept that <laughs> toddlers just quickly go to that distress place. And yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it's hard. And you would yeah. even maybe be considered abusive if you're like, I just have to separate from my child's distress and let right. them have it. Yeah. Right. Because that also is requires compassion for us as caregivers and, and the grownups. Mm. And I would say too that sometimes um, I think people confuse uh, trying to regulate even a child as it has to look like you're performing and you're adding happiness. Sometimes it, it's actually more just presence and to- like tolerance of it, which is more of a, almost a neutral stance. It doesn't always have to look like you're trying to make them feel better. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah, that, that's because the kid is you're it's really mirror neurons. You're mirroring for the, you're modeling for the child of like, I'm not going to fall apart if you're unhappy. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. And that's kind of that term, the angel of comfort, how he says it is that, no, you're not going to have the cookie for dinner. And I get, I get it. I get it. Cause I, I sometimes really want that too. And it sucks when you don't get your way, but I we're just still not having a, the cookie. <laughs> I just Wait. did a parenting module in my um, new uh, digital course and Thing is, even if you get the cookie, there's going to be a moment when it ends. And yeah. even if you cry and get another cookie, there's going to be a moment when that one ends. <laughs> yes. So in my book, yes. I call this dopamine droop. So every happy chemical spurt has an end. Right. And we have to learn to manage that. That's there's right. no alternative. Cute. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. That actually ties in with one of my favorite, um, more spiritual writers, Michael Singer. And he talks about just how, I mean, this is a theory in many different kinds of circles, but we're so externally motivated. Like we just always want that thing outside to, you know, consume, ingest or perform, entertain. But sometimes it's okay to be bored. It's okay to, to feel, to feel it all to, it doesn't have to always be this high or that extreme low either. There can be that, this beautiful spectrum and just becoming more aware and accepting all that. Yeah, well, the urge to make a bad feeling go away is very natural because in the state of nature, the bad feeling had a real physical cause and you had to respond or die. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have right. to honor our own impulse to make the bad feeling go away yes. and then say, yeah, but am I making it go away with a behavior that's actually causing more bad feelings. In the yes. Life. Oh, that's a great point is, am I making it go away doing something that actually is maybe unhealthy for me or will perpetuate a, a cycle? So it's more experimentation with how do we make the bad feelings go away? Cause they will, they will come up. That's part of who we are. How do we appreciate the drive we have to soothe that and make it go away? But in healthy diverse ways where we have many, many tools in our toolbox. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. How, what would you like people to know? Like, is there anything particular you want people to know about and also like how to find you, how to find out more about you? Sure. Uh, To find me at innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. I have lots of free resources, including videos, podcasts, and a five-day happy chemical jumpstart, which is five emails that one a day on each of the chemicals. Awesome. And it's the important thing is that your happy chemicals are not designed to be on all the time, but you're designed to want them and seek them. And so that's the joy of being human. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. 
Well, thank you so much for being on the show and I'll, I'll include the links on my website as well. It was wonderful, really wonderful speaking with you. Thank you for joining me for my interview with Loretta Burning. I think an important thing that came out of that conversation and with a lot of the research that I'm doing for my book is that the better we get at regulating ourselves, figuring out what really helps us feel whatever state seems to be the most aligned with what we need at each moment. So whether if we are really overwhelmed and it feels like racing thoughts, that we have the ability to slow down, to be able to connect with somebody, with ourselves, with whatever's in front of us, or that maybe we need a bit more energy and motivation and inspiration, and we have multiple ways of doing all of these things. So a wide variety of sources of how we get into different states that are all temporary. There's fluctuations for all of them. And there's a purpose behind that. There's a biological purpose of that variety. So the better we get at knowing how to do that for ourselves, knowing how to adjust the volume and to put our attention on different things, different kinds of thoughts or activities or people, the better we get at that, the less susceptible we are to other people's opinions, their reactions, what they are doing, and the less susceptible we are to constantly seeking external validation. So whether that's other people's reactions and behaviors and opinions or external things like substances and activities that may or may not be particularly healthy for us in the long term that give us a short-term gratification but are not necessarily good for us in the future. That's one what one thing that I think came out in the interview. And another just to also think about is the other thing that's coming up for a lot of my attachment research is that we have to understand that when we're thinking about how our past experiences in our home environments, in our childhood environments have affected us, it's not just how a particular parent was with us. So I think we do bias sometimes our opinions about how one particular parent or person really, really affected us, and we leave out the the impact of the other another person. So that's just something to to think about that there are different beliefs we have about ourselves that come not only from the person that dominates our thoughts, maybe when it maybe in a negative way, or even a positive way for that matter but also how our caregivers, our parents interacted with each other. So that's an important aspect that also comes out in what I'm working on as well, is that there's a lot of attention on the mother-child relationship in a lot of attachment research. And there's not quite as much about father's roles in child development, but more and more research is emerging as to how incredibly important it is 
um, for different caregivers to play very different roles. They don't play the same role. Each of our parents, each of our caregivers had their own their own past, obviously, but also their own kind of attachment styles, their own values that they instilled in us. But we also have to understand too that the differences that existed within our parents also led to dynamics between them that may have been imprinted onto us. So if there was a lot of volatility and dysregulation or disrespect or whatever that is, misalignment, misattunement between our caregivers, that also has a very big impact on how we perceive things like relationships and communications and whether people are trustworthy or whether we can rely on them and all of that, those ranges of behaviors that we heard about in that that framework that I introduced in the beginning. I think it's just always helpful for us to reflect on all the different ways that our experiences have impacted us. And that gives us a chance to really honor what's in front of us now and to, you know, if, if we do want to play a role in affecting the next generation and the people around us, it's important for us to think about when, for example, we have young people around us to not just think about how we are with them, but how we are with others in front of them. So the kinds of behaviors that we are modeling in our interactions, not just one-on-one directly with a person how that is being observed by others as well. One final piece I want to add as well In terms of my own, what I'm really becoming more consciously aware of in my learning journey is that understanding someone's perspective more, including your own, meaning where did you actually get that perspective? Like where, how did you actually get to the point where you are seeing something a certain way? And then being able to also very, very much transfer that ability to understanding someone else, I think is almost like a magic formula for feeling better. So any kind of learning, training you can do to help you understand people better, understand yourself better, from what I've seen for the most part, what people are really struggling with as like the foundation of what causes a lot of issues in their life is their relationship issues, whether it's with family, with their own social anxieties, a need for social acceptance, all of that kind of stuff. Really, truly understanding your own perspective, where it came from, and the perspective of other people in your life who you are having challenges with or who you simply just want to understand better. The more we do this and the more we share our own perspectives as well and a depth that comes from understanding how we got to this place, that it didn't just form out of nowhere. We're not just perceiving without a filter. We're not perceiving things exactly as someone else would. 
I think that the more we all invest in that kind of depth of understanding, I think the better the mental health of society will be for everybody. So I encourage you to sign up for any kind of, there's just so much out there that previous generations did not have access to, and we do. So there isn't as much of an excuse for us nowadays to not use our time to try to understand ourselves and understand others better. So I just want to encourage you um, to do anything you can to sign up. There's lots of free stuff out there. There, you know, if you can do it in person, that's great. But if not, there's so much online to invest in a deeper perspective, to invest in understanding things to a more sophisticated and complex and mature degree. I think that is part of the road to really just feeling better, thinking more clearly, making better decisions overall. So wanted to put that out there. I don't have anything at this moment (laughs) other than my blog, but I have a lot of content on my blog. So I really encourage you to go there. I have created a massive library of content that I have put a lot of work into. And there are so many people out there who have done the same thing, who have taken years and years and years of thought and experience and studies and whatever, and they've put stuff out there. So find find the stuff that resonates for you and trial and error and see how it works. If it makes you feel better, if it makes it feel like you make better choices in your life that accumulate and start to make you continuously feel better, then it's probably a good source of information. If it seems like you just repeat your patterns over and over again and you don't want to repeat them and you don't like how you feel, then you might need new sources of information, new perspectives that you listen to to understand. So I just wanted to get on a little soapbox there about that, that I'm just seeing a lot of people continuously repeat behaviors or feeling bad but they're not getting other perspectives. They're not learning. They're not turning to teachers and experts and other kinds of information to try and have as data for their brains to work with. And previous generations did not have access to that kind of information the way we do. This is very early in the morning for me, uh, if you can hear from my voice, but I just wanted to also put that out there. Uh, That was on my mind. So thank you for joining me in this episode. And I do hope to do some retreats this year, going into a bit of a transition phase for the next couple of months. So I'm not sure exactly how my schedule will look. I have a lot of different priorities to kind of figure out, um, as well as just my own internal processes that I think are really important for me to attend to as someone who wants to really share 
on a very deep and sincere level how we do get better at regulating ourselves with within our families, within our relationships, um, within different choices that we make. So stay tuned for updates. And I do have some more interviews coming up. Um, just not sure exactly sure how I what my publishing schedule will look like in the coming months. But thank you so much for just being a part of this community. It means a lot to me to hear the comments from people and to just know that my words might help someone. And, um, you know, it's been a long journey and I've been doing this for a very long time and I take it very seriously that you are actually choosing to listen and making me a part of your life in some way. So thank you so much. And you can check out more at my website at stephaniefay.com. Thank you. Thank you.